Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and I'm actually going to go to the first verse of chapter 8. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Well, we have reached the end of the Sermon on the Mount, all God's people said. (laughs) You all have been a very good sport. Very patient. Today, Jesus gives his closing pitch. It's kind of Jesus' mic drop moment, if you will. Um, he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. He said an awful lot of stuff, and you know, there's a lot to chew on here. People have been chewing on it for a couple thousand years at this point, right? We're still talking about it. But as he's wrapping up, he wants to make a forceful closing statement That's what you do at the end of any sermon. You're making a final appeal, right? And he's been hammering this idea of a a binary of of true and false disciples, right? Uh, He's talked about sheep and wolves. Uh, He talked about the narrow gate and the broad way. He talked about fruitful and unfruitful trees. And now he talks about wise guys and fools. And Jesus pities the fools. He closes with this illustration about home construction. And that makes sense coming from a carpenter, doesn't it, right? Uh, He knows construction. Jesus knows all about it. He probably built many houses in his time. It's kind of like why I use deli illustrations, right? He's, He's talking about what he knows, right? Jesus, in his humanity, was a carpenter by trade. And he wants to urge us to make use of this sermon. He wants a response to it. So it's time for this sales pitch, and he says that what we do with his words is like a man building a house. And there are smart smart ways to do that, and there are stupid ways to do that. And sometimes you don't know the difference until something actually happens and goes wrong, right? Uh, And so his closing point is basically, don't be stupid. So to prepare for this message, apparently, I conducted an experiment this week at home, late on Monday afternoon when I should have been doing just about anything else, I made the mistake of starting a home project, or rather starting a a new leg of an old project that I've been working on for a long time. It's the sort of project that makes a big mess but accomplishes nothing. Some of you know the sort, Jason. And uh, I'm still not sure how to solve the current problem and dilemma that I've created. I've been very slowly, as Jason knows, installing a a split AC system at the house, and, you know, just in time for winter, because that's important. (laughs) And um, now this is in part so that we'll be able to host more church functions in summer comfortably. I'm doing this for you guys, you know. Um, But this project requires drilling a three-inch hole in your wall. Uh, you know, to run the lines. And uh, it's kind of important, therefore, that you know kind of 
where you want to put that hole before you drill it, you know, you want that to be right. So I had this brilliant idea, I'm going to run the drain lines through the interior wall onto the front porch and across because people won't see it, it'll keep the unsightly lines out of the living room and, uh, you know, this should be easy, right, it's an interior wall. But as I drilled the pilot hole through what turned out to be concrete, uh, I suddenly hit a snag, and, and, and the pilot hole wouldn't go any deeper, okay? Uh, the bit just wouldn't move. So I had the additional brilliant idea, like, well, to find out what's going on, let's just put the three-inch hole up to that point and find out what the, the dilemma is. The problem, as it turns out, is a steel beam <laughs> that runs the whole width of the house and is holding up the front wall of the house. I can't cut through that. I don't have the strength or the tools, and I'm thinking it probably wouldn't be a good idea to put a three-inch hole through that particular piece of material. So now I have a really nifty, very clean three-inch hole in the wall of my living room, which Georgia just loves. <laughs> now, one thing I've learned in this process is that my house is more solid than I thought. I'm looking for silver linings here, people. Whoever designed my house didn't go halfway, and while I wasn't terribly happy with the way I've discovered it, I'm kind of pleased because I think to myself, I expect this house to stand for a long time, you know? Not every house is built like that. Uh, our first home, I've told you stories about this one perhaps, but uh, it was a 130-year-old clapboard house on a hill in Belfont, Pennsylvania, and the whole building was sagging in the middle. I like to think it was smiling at you, kind of like this. There was like easily a six-inch difference from the center of the house to the wall. And one time, uh, somebody came over and helped me take a sample cut out of the wall, kind of like I did this week, but this was to find out, well, what's this thing actually made of? We didn't know, and, and it was a contractor friend from church up there, and he just about laughed out loud when we did this because there was like nothing there. There was ugly 80s paneling, uh, a little bit of lath and some boards with daylight between them. And I thought to myself, this is not a well-built house, you know. How it survived for over a century, I do not know. But I'm guessing it has something to do with the fact that it was built on a mountain and not on a beach. And of course, you know, as we talk about construction and what will stand and what won't, you know, we've all seen recent news in Florida, right? They got hammered pretty hard by a Category 4 hurricane in the, a couple of weeks ago, right? And, and I'm sure that there are houses of every stripe, good, bad, and in between, throughout the state of Florida, I'm sure. But what truly sets them apart, as it turns out, is what happens when the severe weather hits, right? So when Hurricane Ian bears down on the Gulf, it separates the wheat from the chaff a bit, right? Solid structures will take the beating, and people will come in later and clean them up, and it's going to be fine. But then you'd see, like other things, like entire motorhome parks are just gone, right? And tornado season plays a very similar role in the Midwest, right? The running gag is that every tornado seems to be aiming for the trailer parks, right? That's not actually true, but that's just where most of the damage happens. I'm not fooled, though. I've seen The Wizard of Oz. I wouldn't live in any house in Kansas or anything like that. But if you have to live there, you might as well live in concrete and steel, right? Now, of course, none of that's relevant to us, right? We're in Pennsylvania. Georgia likes to say living here is like living in the Shire. We have no major predators. Our weather is usually kind of mild. Uh, our houses tend to be destroyed by neglect, is what I find. 
But even here, weather can happen. We had those tornadoes a couple of years ago in Philly. Uh, but the point is, how you build a house makes a big difference. It takes planning, right? And maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, it might even stand for 130 years, but eventually you're going to pay the price for sloppy building decisions. And it matters whether you built your house in a wise way or a foolish way. Now, of course, this is all just a simile that Jesus is using, right? Jesus isn't talking about literal houses. It's an illustration, something that we can all understand because we've all seen the difference between solid construction and a dumpy shack, right? Some of us have even lived in the differences between those two places. But the illustration is pretty clear because he explains it up front. You know, sometimes Jesus uses parables uh, that are designed to confuse you. That's not the case here. He says right away that this is really about his words, this whole sermon Specifically, what he says in verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's quite a statement about any sermon. I've never had the temerity to make such a bold statement at the end of any of my messages. Maybe I should try it sometime. I don't know. But uh, Jesus is making a, a sensible enough point because what he's saying is, you know, what good is a sermon if you're not going to apply it? Even an uninspired sermon, like what you're listening to this morning, right? Uh, what good is it for you to be here on Sunday morning if you're not going to remember anything that I said and none of it's useful? This is not supposed to be a lecture. It's supposed to be an appeal to believe and to act in a certain way, right? So what good is doing that, it, 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 listening to that and not doing anything? What good is doing daily devotional readings if you're never going to put them into practice? Why read your Bible at all if you're not going to apply it? And that's the main idea that Jesus is illustrating. You've heard his words, now what are you going to do with them? It's a very relevant question at this point at the end of the sermon. He's given this perfect sermon on discipleship, and as he's wrapping up, he asks us, okay, what are you going to do with it now? Are you going to be smart or stupid? And he starts by giving the positive example. He gives this, the, the, the example of the wise man who builds his house on the rock. This is the man who did his homework. You know, you, you don't always know at a glance whether the terrain is good and, and whether this is good soil to build on. Uh, You've got you to do some research first, right? You've got to take some time. You don't just go in there with, with a, a pile of lumber and get started. You want to make sure this is not a floodplain, right? You might want to dig a few holes just to find out what kind of terrain you're working with. And only after a sort of proper survey is the wise man going to actually lay the first bricks, Right? Solid ground would be preferable, right? Swamp is not ideal. Like, you want to think about these things, usually. And nowadays, if there's not a rock, you at least make one, right? Because we have modern technology. We have concrete. That's why, you know, they often will dig a basement. They lay a concrete foundation. We've noticed there's a house on the West End in Allentown that's being built on top of a, like, what amounts to, like, a two-story basement that they dug for this thing. And I'm like, that is serious commitment to building on a rock. But whether the rock is natural or man-made, you want that foundation. And the wise man knows that. And the proof is in the pudding. The only way to tell the quality of the foundation is to test it in real life. Jesus says in verse 25, The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus describes a threefold weather pattern here, right? 
Rain hitting from above, wind hitting it from the sides, and floods getting you from the bottom up. It's coming from everywhere. And he says, the wise man's house will stand up to all three of these attacks. And it is like an attack. These are not subtle bits of weather, right? Uh, He says it beat against the house is what the ESV says, but the Greek could also be translated as slam, strike against, or even assault. So this is like a Category 5 hurricane spawning tornadoes and sharknadoes and everything else. It's just throwing everything at you, right? And, And the sense you get is that this is rather an unusual storm that he's describing, the kind that you're not really expecting typically, but you gotta be prepared for. But he says the house stands anyway, because the wise man built on the rock. Not so the foolish man. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Uh, this would seem to be the obvious counterexample, right? Uh, What can possibly last if you build it on the sand? Every year I serve as a chaplain at Seaside Home in Cape May. That house that we stay at is not exactly a fortress, right? It's it's, it's made, you know, it's, it's just a simple wood structure with thin walls. But it's not on the beach, so it's still standing, right? The previous building this organization had owned was a beautiful, magnificent Victorian building in Cape May Point. But it was on the sand. And in the 40s, there were some heavy storms that came through and washed most of it out to sea. Sand is a bad foundation, as it turns out. Every year when we're at the beach, my kids will build something on the beach. You name it, anything. It could just be a pit. It could be a tower. It could be any, a castle, whatever. And they will ask me with hopeful eyes, Dad, do you think this will be here tomorrow? And I smile and say, No! <laughs> Might as well topple it now so that you're not disappointed in the morning. Because that's what dads do. We encourage our children. (laughs) But seriously, how on earth can anything last on the beach? Waves will come and knock it down. If it rains, that'll have the same effect. Even if it sits there dry, eventually the sun will dry it out and it'll just crumble and fall apart, right? That's what happens. Not to mention all the other kids on the beach who like to knock down castles like it's their job. Building on sand, building anything on sand is kind of silly. Unless you have the modern technology to bury huge concrete pillars deep into the, you know, underneath the surface. And even then you have no guarantees, The point is the fool is in too much of a hurry to do the job right. There's no permits, there's no land survey, no soil samples, just get her done. And, you know, the fact is, even with proper modern technology, it's not always a guarantee. Because, I I don't know if you remember from last year, I don't know why these stories always seem to happen in Florida. It just keeps coming up again and again. But somewhere outside Miami, there was a huge condo. There was no bad weather, and it just collapsed. just fell in the middle of the night. It got caught on security camera, killed almost 100 people. Why? Because it was near the ocean and there was corrosion happening. And of course, you know, Jesus is using extreme examples here to make a point. We all know that there are a multitude of soil types in the world. There's a, there's a range, right? If I were to build on, say, loamy soil, right, or clay, right, it would probably be okay for a while. Uh, 
but Jesus intentionally gives no quarter. There's no in-between in this illustration, just like his previous illustrations, right? There's no being semi-wise or semi-foolish, right? Or just having just okay building habits. It's rock or sand. You've got to make the choice. There's no halfway in Jesus' illustration. And that's what makes this sort of a mic drop moment. Wise men will listen. Fools won't. You're either going to pay attention to what I said or you're an idiot. Bam, walk away. So, obviously we want to be wise, right? I'm taking it as a given that most of us are not aspiring to be fools, right? Though our actions may sometimes make you wonder. But at the very least, Jesus' illustration is supposed to make the choice very clear and obvious, right? Because a house that stands is better than one that falls over, right? That's not rocket science. But at that point... We have to ask some other questions about the details. We, we know Jesus wants us to be wise. We know he wants us to take his words seriously. And we know that the two things go together, right? Wisdom and listening to Jesus' words and doing them, that's synonymous. But it doesn't explain every detail of the illustration because, yes, we, we want a house that will withstand the storm. We get that. But, again, it's only an illustration. What exactly are we building? What does the house symbolize? And what about the storm? What kind of storm are we talking about here? What kind of beating is this? If the storm is the test, we want to know that we're preparing for that test. We want to build well to prepare for it. And there's a few ways of reading this and thinking about it, and commentators differ a bit on it. We could say that the house is referring to the Christian life in general. Uh, After all, Jesus equates building uh, the house with with listening to his words and doing them, so maybe he simply means being a disciple, living the Christian life, right? Uh, The entire Sermon on the Mount is about discipleship, so maybe being a good disciple means your house will be solid and well-built. The better we are at discipleship, the more secure it'll be. And maybe the storm represents spiritual warfare, sin, temptation, the weakness of the flesh. Those things can certainly feel like you're enduring a storm, can't they? And maybe what Jesus means is that we need to get the discipleship part right and then we'll be able to withstand the attacks of the devil. Okay, that's a possible thing. Or maybe the house refers to the kingdom more broadly. The church. And maybe he means we can help build that kingdom if we obey his words. Maybe obedience is the key to kingdom growth and durability. If we're better disciples, the kingdom will be stronger. Well, it sounds reasonable. Uh, Maybe the storm represents persecution or oppression, and if we build the house well enough, it will survive the persecution because we followed his words. We will be bold to withstand the pressure from the world around us if we obey. There's some sense to that. Uh, The house could be read as more of a reference to to my household, right? That if I obey my words, his words, in, in my household, this little empire of mine, right, that that will be blessed, I will prosper, financially even, and maybe have a good marriage. I'll have successful and happy children who love Jesus. And maybe the storms are just the bad breaks that seem to stand in the way, like the financial struggles and the marriage struggles and rebellious children. There could be elements of truth in all of that. I think the first one's probably the most accurate. But maybe all of it kind of misses the main point. Uh, We all want the security of a home that will last, right? 
I've said before in, in other illustrations Jesus used that home is synonymous with safety in our minds, right? It's meant to be that way. And that's why when we see huge violent weather patterns coming in and, and you know, that kind of freaks us out a little bit because our home, our security is now threatened, right? No one watches the weather channel until it's hurricane and tornado season. But the house Jesus is talking about here, if it's the kingdom, that doesn't make complete sense because he's building that. Nothing can tear that down, right? Uh, if he's referring to our personal household, I think we run the risk of turning this into a health and wealth gospel type of message. Uh, I begin to suspect that the house actually symbolizes the first thing. It, it's kind of covering everything we do in life. It's our entire life of Christian discipleship. That leaves me a little bit concerned because when I consider my track record, and maybe you feel this way, I think to myself, man, my house is going to look a little more like the rickety shack in Belfont than it looks like anything else. And once again, I think it would be very easy to read this passage and only kind of look at it in a surface way and to walk away with the lesson that your safety depends on you and your diligence and your obedience, and your faithfulness. Go, be wise, and follow Jesus' commands as best you can, and if you do good enough, and you build your house strong enough, your house might stand up to the storm. But if we read it that way, I think we'll go home with very little comfort, because none of us has the track record we like to think we do. We've been learning for months, that these commands of Jesus throughout the Sermon on the Mount are not designed to take the law and make it easy. In fact, he's consistently raised the bar and made it harder, hasn't he? So if his final takeaway is, okay, go try harder or else, then I think we're all in a lot of trouble. And beloved, this, this is a mindset you'll find among some theologians even today. This was something that was going on at the seminary when I was there you had some guys that were advocating some form or another of the, this, what they call the new perspective on Paul, which has been creeping around. And uh, the idea is sort of that you're admitted to the covenant by grace, but that you stay in by your own faithfulness. And I think to myself, how many people have had their faith crushed by such thinking? So what is Jesus talking about here? What separates the wise man from the fool? He says, great was the fall of the fool's house. And look, I love me a good implosion like any guy, right? But I've never been the subject of that. So how can we avoid a massive collapse? Well, the secret, I think, is hidden in plain sight, and we'll see it in a second, but it took me a few days to notice it. And the reason it, it's hard to notice at first, and it, it, it can throw you a little bit, is that because in some ways... The wise man and the foolish man have a lot in common in this passage. Uh, you'll notice that Jesus is very clear that both men have heard his words. They both go to church, apparently. He assumes that both men are familiar with his teaching, and that's kind of shocking to us, isn't it? Because it demonstrates that hearing Jesus and knowing his words is not sufficient. A couple weeks ago in Sunday school, we were talking about different techniques for getting in the Word, and I heard some great ideas in the process that you guys were feeding me, right? We talked about Bible in a year programs. 
uh, that we need to just dive in, get started, don't think about it. Uh, using Bible study, and, uh, study Bibles and, and reference tools, commentaries so that you can understand it better. Uh, family devotionals, because you can learn by teaching it to your kids. Uh, listening to podcasts, hanging verses on your fridge or your mirror at home. Trying to hear it in God's voice. We talked about journaling. We talked about meditating. We talked about memorization. Using apps on your phone. Sharing it with people. And they were all great ideas. But what you see in this passage again is that hearing the word is not enough. Because discipleship, following Jesus, is not merely an intellectual exercise. Some people will spend their entire lives hearing the word and will never internalize any of it. I'm convinced there will be people who have spent their lives hearing the word, memorizing it, even teaching it, sitting in church all their lives who will not be able to stand in the judgment. I think that's what Jesus is saying. The wise and the foolish builder both know the word. Neither of them to the naked eye is a godless heathen in that sense. And the other thing they both have in common is that they both build. And the sense you get is that each is building in response to what they heard, but apparently they're applying it rather differently. The end result is very different. But in practice, and to our naked eye, it would look the same. Much like the wolves look like the sheep. So the wise man and the fool have a lot in common, and this is alarming because Jesus has told us about the false teachers that are roaming around the church trying to devour people, and he's talked about Christians who do not bear fruit, but we see here that in some false believers build whole houses. And we could interpret that as being fruitful. We could misread it. We could misread it in ourselves, perhaps. What eventually struck me this week is that Jesus makes absolutely no comment on the houses themselves. I find that kind of remarkable coming from a carpenter. He could have fleshed out this illustration a good bit. He could have been very colorful by going on at length about how the foolish man forgot to put a beam where it should be and he, he didn't stud it out properly, right? How, how he didn't follow the building codes or OSHA regulations or whatever, right? He could talk about how the guy cut corners and, and, and built really a shabby property here. But Jesus says nothing about the two houses themselves. And the impression you get is that the houses, for all intents and purposes, are identical to the naked eye. The quality of the construction might be the same. So the only functional difference is the foundation. One man builds on the rock and the other builds on the sand... And I think the important little clue, the little hint that's in here is a very small grammatical detail in the passage, but Jesus says that the wise man built on the rock. Not on a rock, not on rocky soil, not on solid ground, but on the rock. Singular, with a definite article. He also says the sand, yes, but sand is a general concept. Sand is everywhere. When he says the rock, it seems to be referring to something definite. And if the only difference between these homes is what they're built on, that's key. Because it's not how the house is built or how much effort the builders put into it. It's not how beautiful the house looks to us. It's not even the quality of the workmanship. It all comes down to the foundation. 
The rock makes all the difference. And the rock is not a what, but a who. God was long known as the rock of Israel. It's like we say in the opening prayer before I preach every week. Our rock and our redeemer. Later in this very gospel, Matthew chapter 16, when Peter proclaims Jesus as the Christ, Jesus responds and says, On this rock I will build my church, and I assure you he was talking about himself, not that goofball Peter. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us about a rock that guided Israel in the wilderness, and he says that rock was Christ. And the repeated testimony of Scripture is that Jesus has become the cornerstone of his church. Jesus has been the rock since long before Dwayne Johnson showed up. And he makes all the difference. The safety of your house depends entirely on him, not on you. And he is the one who will keep you standing through the storm of judgment. And that's what I believe Jesus means when he's talking about the storm here, because that's, that fits in with what he's been talking about in the last couple sections too. The judgment is the Category 5 storm that is headed our way, and it will destroy everything in its path unless it's built on the rock. It's not the quality of the house that ultimately will make the difference, but where you build it. The safety of your house is not dependent on your handiwork, but on the foundation. And the church's one and only foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And a shack on the rock will be better off than a mansion on the sand. You can do great and wonderful things in life, but if you're building on the sand, it will crash, and it will crash hard. This is bold stuff from Jesus. He's not telling you to build better by trying harder. He's telling you that only his followers will even survive. His words are the key to survival. He is the rock, and only those who build on him will live. He has set himself up as the answer to all the questions in this sermon. No wonder the crowd ends up responding the way they do. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This guy is not like the others. He's different. We've heard solid teaching before, but this guy has authority. The crowd does exactly what they should do. They follow him because that's what disciples do. He has the words of life. Where else can they go? The only wise thing to do is to follow him and listen to him and then build your life, your home, and your safety on him. I loved the way Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. He puts things so well. He said that the effect of this sermon is that we are directed to the preacher rather than the sermon. And I'm going to read just a couple selections from him because he says things better than I do. Don't mind me. Says Lloyd-Jones, when we consider the Sermon on the Mount, we are never to stop even with the moral, ethical, and spiritual teaching, we are to go beyond all these things, wonderful though they are, and vital as they all are, to the person of the preacher himself. There are two main reasons for saying that. The first is that, ultimately, the authority of the sermon derives from the preacher. But quite apart from such a general deduction, our Lord himself insists upon our paying attention to it. He calls attention to himself in the sermon. We see then that our Lord himself calls attention to himself, and in a sense, there is nothing in the sermon which is quite so remarkable as the way in which he does that. So having looked at the whole sermon, we find that all the instructions he gave become focused together in him. Let us try to recapture this if we can. 
for there, if, if there is, for there is nothing that we should enjoy so much as looking at him. I love that. So as we get to the end of this whole series, I just want to say that the spoiler from chapter 5, you may remember that, it's still true all these months later. Jesus already told us that he came to fulfill the law. What can we possibly add to that? The gospel is still true. Jesus still saves sinners, and the Holy Spirit is still sanctifying his people. But being a disciple means building everything on Christ, not because you're adding to his work. To the contrary, you're building on the only foundation that will hold. You can't build on yourself or on the world or anything else. The only work you can do in this life that will last will be built on him. If anything we do stands in the judgment, it'll only be because it rested on the rock. So the question I leave you with is, do you know this rock? And have you taken refuge in him? Or have you been hearing these words for all these years, all while trying to build on something else? You can try that for now. You can build a really nice-looking house that way. It might fool us, but, beloved, the storm will come one day. And Jesus says it will sweep away everything that you have built for yourself apart from him. So what I'll say as we close this thing is, let's act like disciples then. Let's listen and follow and build on the foundation that is Christ. Let us obey the commandments in this sermon. But most of all, fix your eyes on Jesus because that's the heart of discipleship and that is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son We thank you that you sent him, Lord, to to be born into this world, Lord, and to, to live and to die and to be raised up again for us. But, Lord, we thank you that he takes time first to to teach us, to tell us what the kingdom really looks like and to teach us what being a disciple really looks like. Lord, we pray that you would teach us and help us to obey the commands in this sermon. Lord, knowing that as we build on the foundation that is Christ, Lord, that those are the only things that will stand. But Lord, we thank you that even when we fail, we still have that sure foundation if we will rest on it, Lord. That the soul that has leaned on you for repose, you will never send away. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for your word. These things in Jesus' name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from Father, Son.